there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad you're along for the ride. And speaking of riding, I hope many of you are biking or commuting to work or school while you binge on T4C because it's so important to get exercise and kind of clear your head and just get your day off to a great start. Or maybe your evening off to an even better start. And please let me know how we can make these episodes more bingeable for you. I'm wondering if maybe some episodes have been too long, quite frankly. So please email me at andrea at time, the number four coffee.org and let me know. And if you haven't already signed up for the Time for Coffee weekly newsletter, the Java Junkies Journal, please head over to the T4C website at time, the number four coffee.org and sign up. That way you can get an exclusive look into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite espresso drink or drip because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And joining me around the virtual coffee table is Rick Greenberg, the CEO of the digital marketing agency, the Kepler Group, which was recently acquired by the firm Q. Kepler was founded in 2012 and was an independent provider of digital and database services to Fortune 500 clients in the financial services, travel, retail, healthcare, and many other industries. Among its clients, PayPal, Bed Bath & Beyond, The Dish Network, Fidelity Bank, American Express, and J.Crew. Rick is a marketing veteran whose experience extends from brand management back in the early 90s when big data was having more than one coupon code in the market at the same place to helping today's leading brands dynamically market across dozens of digital channels and thousands of marketing moments that touch each consumer every day. Prior to founding Kepler, Rick was SVP of Americas at MediaMath, a partner at Rosetta, and a brand manager at Unilever and Procter & Gamble. Rick, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am over-caffeinated and ready to go. Oh, my God. Goodness, and it isn't even noon. That is not a good sign for the rest of the day. (laughs) All right, Rick, I would love to start our caffeinated career conversation today to help those Java junkies who think that they may be interested in a marketing career better understand what makes digital marketing such an exciting place to start their careers. You know, Andrea, what makes it really exciting for me is that it provides a great foundation for almost anything that you want to do in business. We are using data to make decisions every day. We are using insights to drive innovation. We are innovating constantly. And it really provides people at every level of any marketing agency the opportunity to develop those skills and stretch those muscles. So for those reasons, I actually find it a very exciting field. What I love about it is that it really helps folks create a foundation in what's going on within the economy and modern companies so that even if it isn't the right fit, they're incredibly marketable skills if you want to move into other fields. How is the Kepler Group similar to or different from traditional marketing companies? We built Kepler 
because traditional marketing companies were struggling to adopt and assimilate new technology and data-driven processes fast enough. So I'm an ex-client-side marketer. I have friends that remain client-side marketers, and I heard their frustrations about the fact that they kept hearing about all these magical things that technology could accomplish in the marketing field and just weren't seeing it happen for their brands and from their agencies. And so we built Kepler from the ground up as a technology-driven company. And there are tons of smart people that are within traditional marketing services organizations and traditional agencies. But they're within organizations that are very big ships to turn, and it's very hard to turn them quickly. So we were able to move much more quickly and much more nimbly into adopting technology, building custom tools for brands that we were working with, using data in more complex and aggressive ways. And so I think what really sets us apart is that ability to adopt new practices very quickly, move much more quickly, and drive marketing innovation for our clients more quickly. And part of that is just for a smaller organization. Smaller organizations run faster than bigger organizations. And part of it, I think, is when we were created, which was in that environment where technology had already taken hold and was driving a lot of the industry. So you mentioned the technology piece of Kepler. And on your website, you actually have a really interesting graphic that describes in pictures the proprietary Kepler intelligence platform, which you have also trademarked. What does the Kepler intelligence platform do for your clients? So the ecosystem that we're working within, and just to lay the foundation, what we're doing for clients is helping them create one-to-one marketing experiences for consumers and connecting their brand to those consumers in an individually relevant way. And that's across a very wide array of channels and marketing environments. So that's digital media, which includes Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, online video, YouTube, influencer marketing, paid search, all of the touch points that you're used to seeing on your phone or on your laptop, but also email channels, call centers, direct mail. And so it's really grounded in this idea that you want to have data systems and decisioning rules that are allowing a brand to very dynamically, quote unquote, converse with that consumer. And because we're doing it across that very wide array of touch points and channels, all of which have specific technologies that you use. You have to log into Facebook to drive Facebook ads. You have to log into Amazon's ad platform to drive Amazon ads. You have to log into Google related platform to drive paid search ads. You have to log into an email system to drive email. There's a lot of complexity and workflows that slow people down and make it very hard to achieve that dream state of really fluid and contiguous marketing across all those touch points. So we have built KIP, which is what we call it for short, to not only help connect all those systems so that they work together cohesively, but also automate and streamline a lot of the workflow that happens behind the scenes. Because as you might imagine, if someone has to log into each one of those platforms to do everything, it takes a lot of time and effort. And so we've built Kip to sort of sit on top of and across all of those platforms to make everything work faster and more fluidly. Fantastic. Also on your website, Rick, you say that the Kepler Group creates, in effect, strategically driven audience targeting frameworks and proprietary high-frequency optimization processes that are able to deliver between 30 and 300% ROI gains. Can you kind of put that into English for those of us who are not in your industry? And I obviously understand the last part that you deliver, the 30 to 300% return on investment. But what is full funnel marketing, high frequency optimization processes, and audience targeting frames? 
let's just start with the basics of marketing, right? The key to marketing success is basically putting the right message in front of the right person at the right time to drive some desired behavior. And there's one added aspect to that, which is now in a more dynamic marketing environment, you can actually put the right message in front of the right person at the right time and at the right cost. You can actually bid for putting a message in front of one person. You can bid more for putting that message in front of one person than you might in front of another person based on their relative value to the business or your projected response rate or what have you. So the underpinnings of that are you need an audience strategy to identify who you want to be in front of. You need a plan that helps drive those consumers through the full conversion funnel. And by that, I mean, you start at the top of the funnel, which is when you develop brand awareness. A consumer becomes aware of the brand and interested in the brand. And then they move down the funnel into an engagement phase where they start engaging with the brand, whether that's engaging with the ads or with the content related to that brand or researching the products or going and seeing that product in person if it's a retail environment or an automotive client or what have you. And then there's obviously the conversion aspect of the funnel. So the bottom of the funnel is the conversion where someone actually takes that desired action, whether it's signing up for your newsletter or submitting a lead form for a financial services product or buying the product on the website. And then the last stage of the funnel is the post-conversion stage of the funnel where you engage with that consumer post-conversion to drive lifetime value and maintain a relationship. So you continue to stay in touch with that person in a relevant and respectful way. One of the key things that happens in marketing is people really sort of bombard consumers with messages and actually turn those consumers off from the brand. So carefully managing that whole process from the top of the funnel to post-conversion, long lifetime relationship basis can be and should be a heavily orchestrated process. Throughout that funnel and throughout those processes, you can learn from each one of those touch points. So every time you put a message or an advertisement or an email in front of a consumer based on how they react, if they react at all, what they do post that reaction, you can learn from that one piece of data. And as you amass millions and millions of those pieces of data, you can optimize the plan. So as I mentioned earlier, you can choose to put an ad in front of one person and pay more for it, person A, and you might choose to pay to put a message in front of person B. After you put messages in front of lots of persons A and lots of persons B, you can start to recalibrate that and understand, are those assumptions correct? And that's what optimization is. When I started in marketing, an audience targeting framework would be, we are selling detergent to women 18 to 54. That was it. It was a very simple and sort of broad brushstroke approach to audience targeting. And against that audience profile, you would buy TV or print or send some direct mail. Now what happens is you can create audience targeting frameworks that include hundreds of demographic variables like age, gender, where they live, what products they've expressed interest in, actually buying them or returning a warranty card, or what content they're reading online, which influencers they follow, who they're friends with on social networks. And so you can create these super complex and very precise audience profile strategies so that you're not just targeting persons A and B, you're targeting types one through a thousand. And each one of those types gets potentially different messaging at a different frequency in different environments. And from each one of those touches, you're going to push people through the funnel and you're going to optimize. And rapid cycle optimization, as it's mentioned on our website, is actually happening in real time all the time. So you're changing your programs daily, if not multiple times a day. You are turning tactics on and off. You are changing the messaging that you have in the marketplace. And it really becomes this very fluid, very sort of real-time reactive approach to responding to the data, understanding what's going on in the data, and driving for better results. 
Oh, gosh. Well, thank you for that really comprehensive explanation. That sounds really fascinating and also exhausting. Um, you know, I was scrolling through some of the jobs and internships that are currently posted on your website, and there are some really interesting titles that I imagine did not exist when you started out in this business back in the early 90s. Among them, client solutions manager marketing analytics director, digital marketing analyst, optimization and innovation. Would you say that the marketing industry, Rick, now in 2019 is moving away from more of the liberal arts majors and maybe moving more into hard sciences, math and econ majors? The non-quantitative aspects of marketing still exist. So being able to develop insights, think about what they really mean, understand how you're going to connect with consumers, those things still matter. What I think has changed since I started is those hard quantitative skills have actually crept into the day-to-day far more than they did when I started. It's not to say we didn't use numbers and we didn't use analysis in the early days, but the amount of data that we had to do that was infinitesimal compared to what we have today. And so... The requirement today is really to be able to combine those skills that are often expressed in in majors that are quote unquote liberal arts with the skills that are more typical of the quantitative majors like econ or statistics or what have you. And so you don't have to have the major or have a major that's quantitative to do that, but you do have to have the ability to combine those skills once you're in the workplace. So if I were a young person in college right now, and some of our listeners are, maybe majoring in marketing or advertising, what are the kinds of classes or internships or maybe online classes that you would recommend I get, I do to be really competitive in my application? That's a great question. There are certainly classes that you can take to not only create that more well-rounded skill set, but also exhibit it in your application. So make sure you take some statistics classes. Make sure that you take some basic programming classes in Python or some other language, whether it's actually a class within the college curriculum or, to your point, whether it's an online class. And then I think what really helps create that knowledge base and set people apart is get professional certifications. You can get certified by Google, by, you know, taking certain coursework. You can get certified in other platforms. And so to walk in with that level of practical experience using the platforms that are driving this industry is really what gets you the skills and the marketability that you're going to want when you make that first application. And on the flip side, what about for those math, statistics, econ majors, maybe even engineers and physics majors who you are advertising for? Why should they consider a career in digital marketing? I think if you want to end up in a field where you are balancing the use of those skills in an environment where you can still be a communicator, both internally in a team environment, but also with your clients, and you can stretch different muscles, that's really why digital marketing is a compelling field for folks from those backgrounds, because they can round out their experience in a way that I think the strictly quantitative professions don't really offer. Wonderful. What about those young Java junkies listening right now, Rick, who think they may want to do what you did in that they want to work for a startup? How should they evaluate the companies that they're looking at right now that they're considering joining? 
there's companies that create this very dreamlike perception of what startup life can be. You see what Google is about. You see the buildings that Amazon is building in Seattle. You watch the social network and see what happens, portrayal of how Facebook was in the early days. And it creates this perception that startups are magical, right? I mean, they're lots of fun. You have back rubs, you play foosball, and there's tons of, you know, great food and coffee and that sort of thing. And there are companies that do that. I mean, you go, you know, to Google or Facebook or Amazon's offices today, and there are amazing work environments. And I credit each of those companies for creating those environments. But most startups don't actually have that day to day. Most startups fail. And most startups have very specific cultures that can be very difficult to work in. So I think the key is to really is is not just to say, oh, it's a startup. That's exciting. I'm in. It's really to sift through all of the options that are out there. And I applaud folks that want to work in it because it's a really exciting environment to be in if you find the right one. But the things that I would look for are, does the leadership team have maturity and experience. And that's not necessarily saying they have to be older. There are tons of young entrepreneurs that bring maturity the minute they start their company in their early to mid-20s. But does it feel like a company where people are making mature decisions about what's right for the business? When you interview with the company, are you hearing consistency in the messaging? Or does it feel like people are running in different directions, which often happens in a startup environment? Is it an environment where the CEO or one or two of the leaders are spending more time building their personal brand external to the company rather than focusing on the company itself? These are environments where you can have very strong personalities because it takes strong personalities to decide, you know what, I'm going to go into an environment where statistically the likelihood is I'm going to fail and I'm going to beat those odds. That takes a certain type of person, which is great for business vision, but can often create some work environment issues that are difficult. So I'd really focus on the personality of the place, whether those leaders have prior successes under their belts, whether you're hearing the consistency of messaging. And when you walk in, it feels like everyone's moving in the same direction. Oh, that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Rick. I am curious why you wanted to go out on your own and how you and your partners managed to turn a business that you started in June 2012 in a rented New York City conference room to a business that has 260 people across five offices in the US and the UK. So there's two questions there, and I'll I'll take the first one first, which is, why did I do what I did? And I've always been entrepreneurial at heart. This is actually the third business that I've started. The first two didn't succeed in the long run, but I've always had an inclination to be on my own. And the circumstance that I found myself in about seven or eight years ago was it really felt like there was a white space in the marketplace where I could bring a better solution to marketers. I'm a marketer by training. I've been in big corporate environments, so I know what they need, but I also have those skills that allowed me to create a new type of marketing services company. And so the sort of lucky intersection of how the industry was evolving and the moment in time when I could go out on my own really created that opportunity for me to pursue my dream. I think what has led to our success is that we are very grounded in what we're doing. We really focus on the business fundamentals and we focus on bringing value all the time, not just to our clients, which is a key focus of what we do, but to our employees, to our business partners, to our investors. We really focus on driving the business in a healthy way for everyone that had either financially or emotionally invested in the enterprise. And I think that's what's lacking in a lot of startups is startups can be sort of very flashy and very exciting. And too often, I think they get a little too much funding too quickly and get distracted by creating a really flashy work environment or creating perks. And I'm not saying perks are bad, but perks are, are a feature. They're not a function of the business. And so 
we assembled a small team of folks that all had experience from a diverse set of backgrounds in the marketing industry. We brought consultants and technologists and advertising people together. There were six of us that started it. And we all had prior experience and we'd all had stops and starts in our career. And I think we all benefited from the fact that we could apply what we had learned from prior successes and prior failures to creating a grown-up company from day one. And it certainly didn't feel grown up when we were in that walk-up conference room seven years ago. It felt like a sort of scrappy startup. I remember the sixth employee who I managed to secure a key partner of mine walked into that office his first day and you could see the look of horror on his face. He left another job for this. But we started very scrappy and we focused on the fundamentals. And I think we talked about this in a prior conversation, really focused on always putting points on the board. Awesome. I'm curious, that sixth hire, was he at the firm when you sold a portion of it to Q? Was he still with you? He still is. Yeah. So one of the six folks left pretty quickly. She had been talking to her dream employer a while before she joined us. And then it it went quiet. And then all of a sudden they came back and and offered her a job and celebrated the fact that she'd gotten her dream job. But the other five over there on day one are still with the company seven years later. So I'm guessing that that guy was pretty darn happy that he stayed. We're all thrilled with where we ended up and being part of the Q Collective. But I think the reason he's thrilled that he stayed, as am I, is you get to look out over the room when you have an all-hands meeting or when you have a holiday party, and you get to see what you've built. And it is just thrilling, right? I mean, every year, I mean, when we had our first holiday party and it was 12 people instead of six, that was super thrilling. We had doubled in size. And then when you look out over the room and it's 200 people or 250 people, it's just sort of mind-blowing. And so I think that's what's most thrilling about what we've achieved together is that we have built something that is truly distinct in the market and that we have assembled the best team I've ever worked with. And it's just an incredible, incredible emotional experience. So Rick, I would like to flash back to when you were an undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania and your major was intellectual history. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I didn't have the faintest idea what I was going to do with that. I had no plans of being in academia or being an historian. It was just a subject that I was really interested in, and I had the luxury of pursuing it. I did balance it with classes at the Wharton School and with science classes. I afforded with pre-med for a little while there, but intellectual history was the common thread for me for several years there, just because it was it was a super interesting topic. So how did you get your first job and end up in marketing? So I was president of my fraternity. And I had to meet with the treasurer of the fraternity, who was another junior, one day. And I called him up and said, hey, can we get together? And he said, I'll be there in half an hour because it's the last day of recruiting at the Career Center. And so I want to drop off some resumes and then I'll come over. Well, I was a history major. I had never even heard of the Career Center before then. I panicked. I said, oh, my God, it's the last day for recruiting. So I printed out 30 or 40 resumes and I walked over and I just threw them in every slot in the Career Center. And I was just fortunate enough to get an interview with P&G for an internship between my junior and senior year. And I did get the internship and it was just a terrific experience. And so at the end of that summer, I got an offer to go back and I took it. And that set me on my course for marketing and I've never looked back. And P&G, for those who may not be familiar, is Procter & Gamble. Wow. Amazing. So a totally random phone call ends up influencing the course of your future career. That's right. What's really interesting about it, you look back on your life and there are so many instances where you just fall into situations that just click, whether that's friends you make or places you end up living or jobs you end up taking. And this was a great example of being lucky and it was terrific. Rick, can you share a time 
from your professional life, maybe when you weren't lucky, when you struggled, maybe you had a terrible boss or challenging colleagues, maybe as so many of us were at some point in our careers in over your head, whatever the case may be, what was it and how did you recover and perhaps a lesson that you learned in the process? So I was lucky to land a job at P&G and I was lucky to land in marketing and I've loved marketing ever since. But there were a lot of years where I wasn't as happy or productive or successful in my jobs as I should have been. My dad was really sick for the early years of my career and it just characterized my entire life. I woke up worrying about him and worrying about my mother and, and focused more on them than myself. When you're someone who's used to achieving, you often focus on maintaining a facade of everything's cool. I got this. It's under control. And there's often a culture where you're not allowed to show vulnerability. And it really created a bit of a toxic brew for me in that I self-sabotaged and I acted out at work or I blamed my job for unhappiness that wasn't coming from the job. It was coming from some of these circumstances I was dealing with personally and I would run away from that job. And so I think the key learning for me really was you have to find a mentor that you can confide in and you have to be honest with both yourself and the people around you about what's going on. I mean, life gets in the way. And so when I was finally able to manage that issue and compartmentalize it so that it wasn't intruding on my every day, all day, every day, but also where I was able to talk to whoever my manager was or my boss about what was going on and explain what was going on and explain that I need some time or I might be working odd hours. I'd still get all my work done. I'll still work my 50 or 60 hours or whatever I was working, but it might be a slightly different schedule than, than everybody else and that I needed some flexibility. And just the experience of actually unburdening myself was really what unlocked my ability to focus more, to not sabotage myself, to recognize that any problems that I was facing at work paled in comparison with the problems that my family and my father were personally dealing with. And so I'd really encourage folks to find that mentor, either within the company they're working with or outside the company that they're working with, but find a mentor that has professional experience and relevant experience. I certainly confide in teachers and growing up my rabbi and other folks, but you really need to also have a mentor that has been in a professional environment that's similar to yours and can help you navigate the practicalities of what you're facing. Absolutely, Rick. What a wonderful lesson to be imparting to our young listeners, whether it is finding that mentor on the job or with perhaps a religious leader in their community, or if need be with a professional like a psychologist or a social worker or someone who can help them unravel and disentangle some of the mental anguish and emotional anguish that they may be going through. Thank you so much for sharing that. So final time for coffee question, Rick. If you could go back to college, back to UPenn and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think the key piece of advice would be to roll the clock forward in your head or in my head and try to envision where I wanted to end up and how I might get there. And by that, I don't mean create a life plan or create a specific step-by-step -step framework that you're going to live your life by. But I really sort of jumped into my studies and my career with absolutely no idea where I wanted to end up long-term. And I couldn't be more thrilled with where I've ended up over the long-term. But there have been lots of twists and turns, and some of those have been more painful than others. And I think I could have mitigated that quite a bit if I had 
thought through sort of the phases of my life, my professional life, and what each of them might do for me along the way. And then not worry about the details so much. I think it's really easy to focus more on the immediate and get angry about the day-to-day stuff, which distracts you from thinking more sort of abstractly and holistically about the bigger issues. And so I think that would be the, the key piece is to just plan it a little bit more. Oh, that is amazing advice. And honestly, it's one of the many reasons that I wanted to start Time for Coffee, not only to help young people think through what they're going to do with their degree in the short term, but also to benefit from the wisdom and experiences of people like you, Rick, who've been in their profession or professions, having been in multiple careers or worked for multiple companies over the course of their life, so that maybe they can leapfrog some of the twists and turns that you and I experienced. But Maybe also to take comfort in the fact that their career most likely, as their life will, have ups and downs. And even those downs have incredible lessons that can be gleaned and that they should take that in and not beat themselves up because even people like you, who've clearly become a tremendous success in your industry, had tough times. Absolutely. And that's why I wish Time for Coffee existed when I was in college. Well, I want to say thank you so much, Rick, for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I am so thrilled for you and your colleagues at the Kepler Group for all that you have achieved and all that you will achieve for your clients in the years to come. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.